The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. There's a reason why imposter syndrome is a household term. It's because over 70% of us feel it. But if you think you know everything there is to know about imposter feelings, I have a surprise for you. And it's a great conversation from a LinkedIn Live that I did with Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, one of the world's leading researchers, thinkers, and practitioners in helping people manage imposter feelings. question is sort of something that I've been interested in, which is, why do you think imposter syndrome has become a household term? It is, it is in the zeitgeist. It is such a big topic. Even people who don't pay attention to psychological stuff know what imposter syndrome is and talk about it, right? Like, what is it about this concept? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think, you know, Michelle Obama and a lot of really, you know, prominent people sort of started talking about their experience of imposter syndrome, which I think helped popularize the notion for many people. Because for many of us psychologists, it's over 40 years old in terms of the social psychological literature. So it's been there. But I think, you know, having people who we respect and we find to be kind of pretty prominent and, and successful to say that they've experienced it, I think really helped people kind of be like, oh, if they can experience it, I can experience it too. Because it was a bunch of really prominent people started talking about it, I think sort of brought it to light. And I think the other piece of it is, we know this from the research, about 70% of people deal with it. So it's a very familiar concept. It's a very familiar experience. So three quarters of people in the world have experienced it. Is that just because we're human? It is sort of like, I think, a, a common human condition. Not everyone has experienced it, though. So it's not a universal human condition. I do think you have to have a bunch of things that go on in your early experiences that kind of set it in motion. But many of us have those experiences. So I think that that kind of leaves us kind of finding it very familiar. What kind of early experiences set us up for imposter syndrome? Yeah, so... You know, imposter syndrome is this experience when you are successful, competent, experienced, have credentials, but you haven't internalized them. And as a result of not internalizing them, you tend to really have trouble feeling good about your successes, your wins, the things that you do well, and tend to attribute them to one of four things, luck, mistake, overwork, or as a result of a relationship. So our successes become very externalized, where our failures become very internalized. If I fail, it's because I'm, I'm not capable, I'm not good enough, I don't belong here. And so this experience oftentimes is brought about from early childhood experiences, one of them being sort of familial dynamics, where, you know, we're in situations in our family where we get labeled in very particular roles. So we're either the smart one who everything comes easy to when things come hard to us, we feel like, oh, 
we're not as smart as people think we are or the hardworking one where it's like, well, you're not as smart as X or Y or Z, but everything you get comes from working super, super hard. So then we never get to realize we have natural gifts and talents, things that come less hard. Everything has to come from hard work. And the last one type we talk about is like the survivor, people who didn't have somebody telling them they were either one, either from neglect or abuse. And for them, success becomes a way of surviving outside of something, getting away from something. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like one wrong move and I lose everything. So those kinds of childhood experiences, family dynamics where people pleasing was required, where conflict was avoided, where you had parental figures who kind of thrived off of your successes as a proof that they were a good parent, environments in which you felt like you couldn't accept the success as your own. So a variety of different kinds of early childhood experiences really set this in motion, which is also why it makes it more difficult to overcome, because this is not just the stop thinking this and you're going to get over it. It really does require a systematic approach to kind of changing the way that you kind of perceive a variety of things. I think that's really interesting. And one of the things that I've actually been working on with my own therapist and getting really interested in is the idea that we have different parts within ourselves. And some of these parts might be confident and fearless and all of the things, but that may coexist with a part that feels very insecure or is still that little child seeking a mother's love. And so imposter syndrome can show up in people, I think, that you're like, well, they don't seem like they would have it. But the truth is yeah. that we're all we're all different parts, aren't we? Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because when we talk about imposter syndrome, people think you have to be experiencing it every moment of every day to have it. And really it's typically triggered by something, usually triggered by something familiar to you from all those childhood experiences where you don't feel very confident in that moment because of the trigger and what it's kind of revealing or the pieces that haven't been fully worked on inside that it's evoking for you to behave in a certain way or do something particular. So you can have in moments and where you feel super confident, super proud of yourself, super capable, and other moments where you feel like, I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. What am I doing here? Why do they ask me? Those things can coexist. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other in either or experience. Michelle says it's so prevalent now because we as humans have seriously begun questioning ourselves why we're doing what we do and if we're doing it well. Huh. Maybe we're not effective enough and not qualified enough. I think... Yeah. What do you have to say to Michelle's comment? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it is sort of natural to question yourself, but I think what we often think is that it's more common now today than it was 40 years ago. And we, we have not seen any cohort effects in the research. So there's no research to suggest, you hear this now a lot in social, oh, millennials have it more than, there's no data to suggest that millennials have it more than boomers or, you know, we haven't seen any changes in cohort effects. So you know, I think it's really important to recognize, like, I think we've dealt with this for a long time. And I think it's really important that we also realize that it is changeable, that it is something that you don't have to live with just because we've done this for a long time doesn't mean that this is something we have to constantly struggle with. Yeah. And it's hard. Maggie, when it's hit for me, it's been a complete panic of disabling too hard to hide, as well as many opposing parts that coexist. Yeah, it's a really great point. Yeah. You know, Maggie's comment is so important because I think that oftentimes we minimize the impact of imposter syndrome when we say things like, oh, everybody has it. Oh, if you just stop doing this. Oh, it's a superpower. And for most people who experience it when they're triggered and they're in a cycle of imposter syndrome, it's not. It's debilitating. It's terrible. It's doing awful things 
to them, the way that they're showing up in the world, the way they look at themselves. This is not some kind of like super fun, super like superhero kind of experience. It's a really painful experience. It's really painful. Before we get into how we can grow and begin to dismantle it, I wanted to talk a little bit about the systemic roots also of imposter syndrome. This is something that has emerged rightfully so in the literature recently. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the fact that imposter syndrome is something we feel personally, but it has a lot of systemic causes as well, right? Yeah. And I think what's important to recognize is that it has systemic causes for all of us. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of popular press that has said things like women experience imposter syndrome more than men. Black people experience imposter syndrome more than white people. This has been unproven in the literature. There is no research really? that, yes, none that shows that women experience it more than men or people of color experience it in greater numbers. There's zero. And actually, you hear a lot of criticism about the early researchers of imposter syndrome because they were two white women. The current leading researcher in imposter syndrome is a black man, Kevin Coakley. He's at the University of Michigan, and he's actually authoring a volume on imposter syndrome coming out by the American Psychological Association in the new year. And I have a chapter in that book, but he is the the leading author currently, the one doing the most amount of research on it. And he does it with people of color. And what he finds is that the stuff that you're hearing is just clickbait. People just like to enjoy that kind of, you know, like clickbaity thing, because I think it resonates for them in some way that they may experience it more. And we have this kind of like oppression Olympics things going on, who's experiencing it more than other people. And I, I think it's problematic when it isn't verified by actual data and actual research. But what he does find, which I think is really interesting, is that for people of color, they do experience other consequences of imposter syndrome that are really important. So there is a systemic impact. So systemic issues do not cause imposter syndrome. You don't have imposter syndrome because of systemic issues. They do reinforce it. They do Mm -hmm. exacerbate it. They do benefit from imposter syndrome because you work harder, you do more, you have to prove yourself, you get stuck in these systems. However, they're not the cause. If there were, privileged people wouldn't experience it. Men experience it, people from economic... And that's why people get really testy when they see somebody who's got a great life and they're like, how do you have it? Because of these these erroneous notions that, you know, it's an oppressive system. What I will say, though, what we've seen in the research is that, for example, for Black people, imposter feelings are more impactful than minority status distress when it comes to psychological impact. So what that means is, is that for people with imposter syndrome who are Black, their experience of imposter feelings can be worse than their experience of being a minority, which is incredibly powerful. Wow. He found that in the research over a decade ago, he discovered that, which I think is incredibly powerful. This is why we can't blow off these notions that it's the system, it's the system. Because if it's the system and we're waiting for the system to change, we're going to be stuck with these feelings for a very, very long time. Yeah. And I think it's really important to recognize you do have individual impact, even if the system stays oppressive. And I think that's an important concept to hold on to, is that the system can try to oppress you, but if you deal with the feelings, it can't oppress you in the same ways. And so I think that's very important for me to communicate. And what we do find for women, they don't experience in greater numbers. So you can, you know, I think it's encouraged you to not buy into research or people that say that on social. But what we do know is they experience it differently. 
So for example, what we know about, and this is for cisgender women, what we know is that when they experience imposter syndrome, they tend to be counterphobic. So they actually face the thing that they fear. So oftentimes that means that they may be experiencing it with greater frequency because they're not running away from the trigger. They're actually sometimes running toward the trigger. Um, and what we know for cisgender men is that they actually some, avoid oftentimes the triggers and they tend to kind of find themselves allied or connected with peers that are less competent than them because they're aiming toward mastery and aiming to feel better than. And so this may be one of the reasons why people think women experience it more. They're just more exposed to the trigger because they have a tendency to lean into the trigger where men have a tendency to avoid the trigger. But we don't have data that suggests that more women experience it or more. That is so exciting to me to think about, and I'm not going to cast dispersion on any men, but that women or anyone who is used to bumping up against a society that isn't made for them, you know, if we're going to get anywhere, we have to learn to lean into that discomfort. Yes. Yeah. And we just have to. Whereas I think certainly privileged white men, you know, for years didn't have to bump up as much, maybe. Yeah. And can find ways to avoid it and still be successful right? because of systemic issues. So systemic issues are really important, but they are not the end all be all. And I think it's really important for us to not forget that there is both individual and systemic pieces at play and to not think that this is the solve because I don't believe it is the solve because I have seen many people of color who one have been able to recover from their imposter syndrome in systemic oppressive environments. Women do the same. So it is possible to overcome it and the system be very, very similar or not have changed much. You know, so I think that's a very important thing to understand. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. If I decide that in 2024, I finally want to start to tackle consistent imposter feelings, where do I start? What's the mindset shift? Besides, I would assume therapy is great for this. Yeah, absolutely. So therapy can be great. But you know what's interesting? Because this is the sort of double-edged sword of the fact that imposter syndrome is not a pathology. So you hear people, stop pathologizing people with imposter syndrome. Well, it's not a pathology. You can't find it in the DSM. You can't find it in the ICD. It's actually not a pathology. Hmm. The problem with that, though, is because it's not a pathology, many, many psychologists, therapists, social workers, counselors don't actually study it because they don't have to, because it is not a pathological disorder. It is not considered treatable in the sense of like, you actually have certain types of treatments that work very effectively with it. You can actually go to a therapist and they can be like, I don't know how to help you. And they just treat the anxiety. And that's another important thing. You know, I saw this recently on a social post, which made me want to like pull my, all my hair out, 
which is like, you know, imposter syndrome is a symptom of anxiety. Mm -hmm. No, that's not true either. You're not going to find that in the DSM as one of the symptoms of anxiety, imposter syndrome. There's a strong correlation between the two of them, Mm -hmm. but it's not a symptom and they're not one in the same. So you might run into somebody who can actually doesn't know how to treat it. So I would look for somebody if you're looking for a therapist who understands it, knows the mechanisms of it and knows how to support you in the treatment of it. I do believe there are things you are actually working on and intervening. So in my first book, Own Your Greatness, that book has the nine interventions shown in the research to really change the game when it comes to imposter syndrome. When we did that book, we were really focused on, you know, people talked for a long time what it was, what it, I was really interested in, in what changes it, what makes it different, how do you overcome it? We've actually seen from our own kind of study of people who have actually completed it, that it actually can reduce imposter syndrome in about 14 weeks by 30%. And so it's these interventions have been shown in the research. So it's not surprising, but it's great to see that if you use them, it kind of can change things. So some of the mindsets that kind of you have to kind of work on in, in 2024, if you want to do that to kind of really change this, is really first understanding where it came from. It is so important to understand what got you started in this experience. So you hear people say, oh, it's social. It's, it's likely not. It's likely come deeper and earlier than that. And understanding it, the reason why we go to come to understand it is because it is often similar to what you're experiencing today, the kinds of things that trigger you, the kinds of bosses, the kinds of environments, the kinds of ways in which you feel vulnerable, feel very similar to those times. And helping to understand that helps you to kind of take the power away from it and begin to interact with it in a very different way. And so we talk about that in the book as sort of like figuring out sort of what are some of the underpinnings that might have been familiar for you. Then sort of kind of really beginning to learn how to express that openly with others. Because I think oftentimes when we talk about this, we can get our experiences dismissed, especially if we're successful Mm -hmm. or accomplished, but finding places where people will actually validate this is a real experience for us. And then doing things like really working on your narrative. How do you see your successes? What successes have you been ignoring? How have you you know, taken your ability to kind of internalize those successes away from yourself? How do you work on now actually concretely internalizing those as belonging to you and being able to be utilized by you to be successful? And we talk about dealing with automatic negative thoughts, a very familiar CBT concept that is very effective in dealing with sort of the thoughts that come up for us when we make a mistake, when we have a success, when we get caught in those cycles of feeling not good enough. We also talk about self-care. So self-care is really important because when we have imposter syndrome, our tendency to overwork and overfunction is pretty prevalent. And so we're constantly often burnt out. And so how do you kind of embed foundationally a practice, a routine, a habit, a foundational self-care? We talk about building community. That becomes really important. So really taking very concrete, very actionable, concrete steps to kind of really change it can be very effective very quickly. We have so many good questions. Kimberly asks, what are the connections between shame and imposter syndrome? That's a really good question. I don't think it's been explored that much in the research about shame and imposter syndrome, but I would say from my clinical experiences, there's a lot of experiences of shame and imposter syndrome. I think about, you know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because I've experienced imposter syndrome pretty profoundly, probably most of my career, especially early on. 
there were a lot of things I was deeply, deeply shameful about that came directly from my imposter syndrome. For me, it was like staying in places that were very dysfunctional that I felt like I couldn't leave or like, you know, not necessarily negotiating salary. So I ended up underpaid in different ways that I ended up finding out about. And I wouldn't tell people because it felt really like my fault. And like I was broken in some fundamental way that made me embarrassed to have had these different opportunities in life that I fully felt like I couldn't actualize, you know? And so I do think there's a lot of shame that comes with the experience that's important for us to deal with, to unearth, to face, because shame is most powerful when hidden in the corners. Yeah, <laughs> relatable. Yes. For me, what's interesting, I'll just say this, is that I have a cycle that I only recently identified. It was actually when I wrote my book, The Anxious Achiever, which is that I have a long history of being shamed for putting myself out there tall poppy syndrome, they call it in Australia. Mm. I had two jobs where I was publicly shamed for basically like raising my hand and wading into things people didn't think I should. And so when I feel that trigger, the shame is so deep. And then I feel intense imposter feelings. What are you doing? Shut your mouth. You're not credible. And when I wrote my book, because I don't have a PhD, it was impossible for me for many months to even face my book because I felt like I was wading into waters where I had no right to be. Yeah. And my imposter feelings were so intense. Yeah. That identification of that cycle and that recognizing of that pattern and sort of where some of the initial kind of injuries were around it can help you kind of then think about sort of like, how then do I approach the next time that I feel like I have a public moment where I could potentially be shamed? And so it gives us an opportunity to deal with it differently, to take that cycle and do something different. Instead of avoiding the book or the thing, we face it with intentionality because we recognize like, when we avoid it, we're in the cycle of imposter syndrome and we're giving in and feeding it and believing like we should be quiet and we should hide the tall poppy because it's going to come for us. And I, and I would say like, you know, oftentimes we think because we haven't gotten the nth credential, whether it's a PhD, whatever it is. But with my PhD, I had the same exact feelings when I was writing my book because I was like, well, what if there's someone who knows more and what if they question this and what if they question that? And look, they have at times. And I have felt like I have enough to know to either take the challenge or to kind of be like, oh, that's a really good point. But nothing bad happened from the challenge, you know, mm -hmm. and I've been questioned about all kinds of things. And I think it's really allowing yourself to take those risks and to really recognize, you know, what you are capable of. And that's all you can put forth. You can't be anything that you're not, you know. Even just us talking about this is so is so wonderful because I'm looking at you and I'm like she's she's got a doctorate she's an expert she has all this credentialing and then you're like I feel it all the time right I I think that's wonderful. <laughs> Michelle has this question: Is it common for this to manifest later in one's career? Yeah, and what's interesting is that I think it's probably been around because we do believe it comes from an early experience. But what I see happen in later in career, because a, a lot of people will say, oh, imposter syndrome is an early career phenomenon. No, it's not. There's no cohort effects. Remember, there's no moments in which it happens more than others. But I do think what happens oftentimes in later career is that there's greater things on the line. Mm. So like you have a house and you have a mortgage and you have children who work a lot in Berlin, you have like an, a reputation. And so there feels like there's greater risk when, you know, you do something that feels like it's triggering you. And so I do think like 
oftentimes those can be the triggers later in career is that you just feel like there is greater things on the line, there's greater reputation, whatever may be built. I think it's really recognizing that, you know, it can happen at any point, but challenging and dealing with how it's showing up is really important because it doesn't have to stay around. It doesn't have to be what you're always dealing with. So on the other end, I'm a millennial. I've been in organizations and roles of peers who are older by at least 15 years. It often creates awkwardness. People make you feel like you look so young. It makes me think if these contemporaries are feeling like I don't belong in my role because of my age, even though I'm equally capable. And I'm assuming sometimes that can trigger intense imposter feelings. Yeah. So this is back to what we said about like the system stuff. Yeah. So in a system, you know, there can be people who don't want you to be there or don't make you feel like you belong. And your job is to recognize that's a them problem, not a you problem. So what we find, especially in situations where you experience what we call the double impact of imposter syndrome. So that's when you're experiencing imposter syndrome internally, and then you get these messages externally, well, maybe you don't belong, maybe you're not good enough, is that there's a single most important intervention that was community along the identity line that you feel is impacted. So you need to find people who are your age, who are doing similar things, maybe not in the same company, but in the world around you, and talk to them about your experiences, find support, find other people who get it and find ways to kind of strategically handle these interactions. And so it is really important to not do it alone, to not be the only or the one of few. You need to find community. It is incredibly important and an incredibly powerful intervention when you experience this double impact. That's a them problem, not a me problem. I like that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, but you need them to help you deal with the other them. (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, This is, I think I understand what you're using. I'm Asian American and I feel imposter syndrome and I thrive on feedbacks, but that can be dangerous because not everyone leads you to the water. I think not everyone is, their feedback is not intentionally helpful. Yes. And I think it's really important because one of the foundational elements of imposter syndrome is external validation, is the need for external validation. So one of the things that you're working on when you're dealing with imposter syndrome is is learning to have an internal compass that tells you when you're doing what is right for you, when you feel successful, when you are doing something that feels accomplished and not solely looking for external validation to feed that because sometimes the external validation is useful and accurate and sometimes it is erroneous. Mm -hmm. And when it's erroneous, you can believe it as truth and then try to prove yourself to that person that, that, you know, you're, you can be better, you can be stronger, you can be smarter, whatever it is. And you lose yourself and your ability to internalize who you are in those moments of seeking that external validation. So it is a very important thing to be very careful of is external validation and how it feeds imposter syndrome. Is it possible to heal the internal compass? I think it is. I mean, especially as a psychologist. (laughs) I mean, I very much think it is. I also think it is because of my own experience, both working with clients and experiencing it myself. Who I was 15 years ago when I was in the midst of my imposter syndrome is the same person and also a very different person than I was. And I deal with the world in, in a very different way. I was very much reticent. I was very afraid didn't like conflict. You know, I had struggles with kind of owning who I was and what I wanted. That is not who I am today. And so I do think it is really important. Do I get triggered for it today? Absolutely. But I have a very different skill set around how I handle it today than I did 15 years ago. And so I do think it is, it is something you can work on to the point where you can turn the volume on it down so low that it's barely interfering with your life. And so I think that's an important thing to know. When you do get triggered, I'm curious if you would mind sharing if you have a, a script or a, a tool that you use to, as you say, turn down that, because the triggers are going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I remember one of the ones happening 
it happened with Jesse, Jesse Hempel, and I was on her podcast and she asked me a question I didn't know the answer to. And and I got triggered really intensely. And I went to this place where I was like, I don't belong in this podcast. What am I doing here? And I went into this cycle and I shut down and I got quiet. And I remember in that moment saying to myself, I have two options here that are really apparent. One is to kind of like fall apart here and to kind of not be able to respond to anything else. Or the other one is to be like, I don't actually know the answer to that question and let that be okay and see if we can move on from that. Yeah. And I was able to own and did, I didn't know. And you know, that, that wasn't something I knew about. I thought it was an interesting question, but I didn't know the answer and it was fine. And I was able to recover myself in that moment. Because I do think like one of the other aspects we talk about with imposter syndrome is kind of knowing it all or feeling like in order to be competent, you must know everything. Right. And it's not true. You can be competent and not know things. That is okay. And part of dealing with imposter syndrome is being able to admit, like, I don't know the answer to that and being fine and still being like, it doesn't diminish me for not knowing. You know, it's funny. I, I was on stage live last year when I was on my book tour and I misused a term and another panelist rightfully sort of called me out on it. And I had the total experience in, in front of a live audience and on the radio of the internal dialogue going to, see, you're such a fraud. You don't belong here. You know, just the complete like shame imposter spiral. But I was live on stage. And the only thing that got me through that moment was pausing what Moshe Cohen says, you know, slowing down time literally sort of like trying to use my breath to regulate and reset for a minute. And I did that because I asked her to explain more so that I could have a minute to breathe and regulate because we all mess up. Yes. You know, it feels like in life right now, you aren't allowed to ever mess up. The stakes are so high. And everything's so public and easy to find and discover. Yeah. And people will come after you and they do, yeah. they have ill intent. Yes. And so again, to your point of women sort of charging forward into the fire anyway. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And I think that's such an important piece of dealing with imposter syndrome is really allowing yourself to be human and to make mistakes and to realize it is a normal part of like being alive and living, even in really public forums where you're corrected. Like, and it'd be like, that's fine. You know, like, and, but it takes a lot of practice. It means you also have to be wrong a lot, you know, like, and experience it a lot to get a lot of practice doing it. You know, I do think about Claudia and Gay because I do think like, look, like, if someone went over my dissertation, they'd probably find errors in my citations too. Oh, please. I know. I mean, and so like, does that mean that you should, you should, I should not hold it? No, we all make mistakes. And frankly, anybody who's been through a PhD process knows that there are many, many people looking at that document. So she's not the only one culpable in that situation. There are so many people over years who look at what I hope for Claudine Gay. And I, I, I wanted to talk about this. So I'm glad oh, that we're good. talking about it. Which is that I hope for her that she doesn't internalize any of this and that she can go on and still live in her greatness and really be able to recognize that this is a them problem and not a her problem. And so I think it's a great example of the coming after and having, and many of people who I work with have imposter syndrome have had a very difficult, painful moment that's been public. And it's really being able to kind of recognize I can still have that difficult moment and I could still go on and do great things. And it can actually help propel me to do even greater things, you know, because I think you've had the moment you feared the most. 
And so I do think it's really important to really be able to tolerate even times where you truly do make a mistake and it's embarrassing or difficult or hard and still be able to move on and know that we are all human. We all have mistakes, issues, whatever. It's just the nature of humanity. Like that is a universal human condition that none of us is perfect. Well, Dr. Gay, we're rooting for you. Yes, we are. (laughs) Lisa, thank you. I value your work so much. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so touched by that. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.